Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing. Question everything. And start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast. Hosted by Seth Andrews. I have been weak, my friends. I am I'm in the flesh today. Natalie and I try to eat pretty well, stay active, exercise, moderate, but I've been craving lately. You ever just crave a food, random food? And you can't get it out of your head. I'm at the grocery store the other day. And I'm trying to buy all the right stuff. Okay, we need cottage cheese. And I need almond milk. And let's get some proteins over here. Got to buy pecans. And and uh, let's do this and that. And, and I'm walking around an aisle. And there it is. And I can hear it speaking to me. A package of double stuff. Oreo cookies? It's like destiny. It was fate. You know, the stars aligned. And the package actually spoke to me. The little plastic flap opened up and said, Eat me, right? I just couldn't resist. Double stuff, Oreos. I have the package here. Just open it up. Just open it up and have a cookie from time to time. Somebody told me there, there's such a thing as triple stuff Oreo cookies. Where has that been all my life? Where do I find those? Triple stuff? I don't even know what the stuff is. It's like creamy filling, but it's not cream. I think it's just straight sugar. <laughs> I don't care. It's delicious. Have you noticed people eat Oreo cookies in different ways? Like, everyone's got their own method. Are you the just-eat-the-cookie-outright person, or do you pop it open and eat the outside first and then the cream? Do you twist, right? I'm a twister, so you got to twist it so that it uh, comes off cleanly, and then I eat the cream first and finish with 
the cookies. What's your method for the Oreo? Anyway, just a window into my life, my indulgences. As I am in the flesh, I am acting out my carnal culinary desires today. Here's a little bunny trail I've been on. Let me tell you about this and we'll see if you can relate. Have you ever gotten what you would consider to be a bizarre or inflammatory text from somebody and you immediately started mashing out a reply? I don't know. You could do paragraphs like you would write an email because you have so much to say. And then you don't send just yet and you reread it and you're like, no, that's not exactly how I want to say it. I can do this better. So you wipe it out, you delete the text, and you start again. And your partner is sitting next to you going, what are you doing over there? I, I've got to reply to this. Someone sent me this, and I, I need to respond. So you're focused, and you're typing with your thumbs. And you spend another 10 minutes, 15 minutes massaging that reply. And you almost hit send, and then you stop and go, I want to read it again now. No, that's not going to, that's not, I I missed out, I missed this point, and this is redundant. So you wipe that out and you start again, and then you do it another time and another time, five times, until you just either don't send it, or you give up and decide it is what it is. I did this the other night. So another story about my religious mother, and I'll, I'll make this as short as I can. She ended up in the emergency room and she had some stomach pain. And so she ended up uh, getting scoped at the hospital and they found ulcers in her stomach. I'm kind of serious. And so I called and checked on her, trying to be a good son, despite the difficulties that we've had and all the baggage. You know, she's 84 and I'm reaching out in good faith. You're doing okay. Just checking on you. Do you need me to bring by some groceries or whatever? And she cannot help herself. And so as she's talking about how she was there in the waiting room, waiting for the doctor, she should have had to wait for hours to get seen. But someone came right to her and said, the doctor will see you now. And she didn't have to wait very long in the emergency room. And she just knows it was because of Jesus. you're ahead of me you are way ahead of me Uh, jesus in the emergency room before the doctor did what doctors do and knocked you out and dropped a scope down your esophagus and then prescribed 12 weeks of medications and diet changes was jesus bumped somebody with a name tag and a white coat or scrubs over to your chair just a little bit early. I mean, what is the standard for divine intervention? I was tempted to say, in a strong field, that's the stupidest thing I've heard so far in 2023. But I didn't do it because I've been working on myself. I've been working on me. Well, I hope you're okay. Let me know if you need anything. And I hung up. So the next night, I'm sitting up in bed with Natalie. It's about nine o'clock and eh, I feel my phone vibrate. Oh, look. 
Oh, joy of joys. It's a text from my mother. And I immediately regretted unblocking her number. (laughs) Why do I do this to myself? But it was, honestly, I found it, there was utility in seeing how she had said what she had said. And I'll tell you, because I think it's a window into much of what we face when dealing with religious families. And it's an object lesson I think might be uh, relevant to you. She said something weird and cryptic about how the book of Malachi Malachi says something about how the atheist is going to face destruction. It was weird. I couldn't really make too much sense of it. But the final four words of the text from my mother are what struck me. She said, I am your mother. Just stuck it out there. It was like it was its own paragraph kind of thing. So I sat down and started that process. I'm typing out a of paragraphs, and then I thought, no, no. So I wiped it out, and I started again, started again. I must have mashed it for an hour. And finally, I just called her. Hey, Mom, I got your text. What exactly are you trying to say? Well, I know you say you're an atheist. Just, just like that. I know you say you're an atheist. Well... The Bible says here that the atheist is going to face destruction. My first inclination, of course, is to go thermonuclear. Natalie's waiting for it. She's five feet from me. But I tried out a little street epistemology, mostly for my own amusement and to see how it would play out, right? And so I said, well, can you help me understand what that looks like? If I'm going to be destroyed, what does that mean? Will I be annihilated in physical form, or will I be cast off into the cosmos to live forever in darkness, or is it temporary? Uh, I mean, what do you think uh, destruction means for me? And I really felt like it was the first time she'd ever been asked to qualify it or consider it. It's one of those punch words, the sinner will be destroyed. But what does that really mean? And I could feel her working it out. Well, I, there is, you, you won't be in heaven with Jesus. Okay, well, I get that. So I'm going to be destroyed. But what does that look like? She hemmed and hawed, and then I quoted that verse out of the New Testament. Depart from me, you who are cursed into a lake of everlasting fire. Mom, the New Testament says I'm going to spend eternity burning and screaming and writhing in great pain. Uh, Do you hold to that verse out of the Bible? No, I think that that is wrong. I think that was a mistranslation. Okay, all right. You realize this is the translation used by the vast majority of the world's major religions, from the Southern Baptist to the Assembly of God's. I mean, they're preaching literal hell. You're, well, I think that they have misunderstood what the authors originally intended, and that's just not theologically correct. It's uh, The translation is wrong. All right, well, what's the right translation? Like, what translation got this right, Mom? Well, a lot of people like the new Schofield Reference Bible. My face 
gives it away. And Natalie's looking at me and I'm just like, a lot of people say? Okay, well, a lot of people say, Mom. <laughs> How do you know that it's the Schofield reference Bible that is more accurate? And where do you... Well, you know, when you're a believer, the Holy Spirit guides you. But the Holy Spirit is guiding the Southern Baptist and the Assembly. I mean, they're all saved, so the Holy Spirit... And if I'm not a believer... I don't have the Holy Spirit, but I'm supposed to accept the claim of the Bible, but I need the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible. Well, how do I understand it to accept it? She's over there like, eh, 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 totally tilt. I am not losing my mind. I have not raised my voice. I'm just sort of amused and asking questions. Hey, Mom, why do you think if billions of people are reading the wrong message that Jesus hasn't come down here to correct the record? You know, we got Preachers behind the podiums all around the world, they've all got it wrong. Why do you think Jesus would allow everybody to get it wrong? The other side of the line, eh, 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 right? <laughs> just a lot of hemming and hawing. I don't even remember what the non-answer was. And then the final, the big guns. How many times over the last, how many 10 years have I asked you not to do what you're doing, not to interject in this way? No more naming and blaming and shaming. No more sermons, right? We've been down this road, and I drew a line, and you have crossed the line. How many times have you crossed it? And so I framed it like this. I said, either you don't understand what I'm saying, or you are purposefully disrespecting me. Which of those is true, Mom? And the response came back, well, I'm your mother. And there it is. The book of Exodus commands, honor your mother and father, or father and mother. I'm doing it from memory. But a lot of people don't know what the rest of that command is. It's honor your father and mother so that you may live a long life, which is a threat. The implication is if you don't honor your mother and father, God will kill you early. Then comes the question, what does honor look like? The parent is training a child to act and behave and think and be a certain way. And if the child deviates at any age from that, the Bible and biblical cultures, hell, a lot of cultures, authoritarian cultures, high control cultures, tell the parent, well, you're authorized to go stick your head in their windows, tell them they're wrong and Tell them how to live. Boundaries don't exist in that way. In fact, because they were birthed from your loins, they remain under your authority for the rest of their lives. You've got the right to say and do whatever you want. And man, it's hard for people to overcome that after they've done it for decades of their lives. It's been pounded into them. It's your mother. Oh, come on, it's your mother. You got to put up with it. I've heard that a lot. Even when my siblings know that mom's off base, they're like, well, you know, it's your mother. Yeah. It's, and there's a deference there that I find alarming. At what point are you just being a coward or an enabler? Would they abide the stuff that mom says and does from a neighbor, a coworker, a total stranger? Hell no. But a parent is supposed to have some kind of a genetic get-out-of-respect-free card. 
And it's empowering. It's hard, but it's also empowering to say out loud, no, you don't get to play. You don't even have that card. Man, once we understand that we have the right to say it, we have the right to say, you don't have permission. It opens up the world for us. We are liberated. I just found that an interesting note and exercise based on that experience with my mother. Anyway, that's kind of what I've come off of and what's been on my mind lately. Today's broadcast, I would like to hear what is on your mind. Whatever is happening in your world, let's talk about that. Walter, calling in from area code 503. Are you there? Yes. What is on your mind, my friend? What do you want to talk about? Oh, my goodness, Seth. Um, as a young child at a church across the street from my house, we weren't particularly religious, but I got sucked in because they had fun things to do and people to meet. And over time, I realized that it was all a bunch of bullshit. And then by the time I got to college, I realized this, and I had a fun time telling people off about how dumb and stupid they were. And then I found your broadcast in probably about 2013, 2014. When did you start? It was a long time ago. 2010. Yeah, way back. Yeah. And then you taught me, well, you used to be all about it in a Christian uh, broadcaster on the radio, right? Mm -hmm. And then after watching you, I realized that Christian people aren't bad people. You know, I kind of thought the idea was more than the person. And I realized you're a nice person and you went through all that stuff. And it made me realize that being militant toward people who believe is just, it's just a good way to lose friends and you're not going to change anyone's minds. And I've kind of learned to live, you know, let people do whatever they want as long as they don't push it on me. And that has been a uh, great, you taught me a great life lesson and I've held on to it ever since. You're very kind. I think I'd add the caveat that some religious people are good people. Many re religious yes. people. Uh, yes, but I, th many. I take the spirit of what you're saying. I'm also not saying that we always have to play nice. I'm all about, I hate the word balance because it, there's a false equivalence, sort of a baggage attached to that that I don't mean. But there are a lot of people who are just top heavy. All they do is rage and froth and scream and carry on. And so when I say that's no way to live, right? Our existence on this planet, yeah. this finite existence is short. And we need to be able to enjoy, breathe the air, feel the sun on our faces, you know, make memories, love, do those amazing things. You know, to rage and froth and freak all the time is, I think, destructive really to ourselves. And if you say that, people are like, oh, yeah, well, what about these horrible people? Aren't you angry about the injustice? And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not saying we never have moments of anger, even rage about the injustices. I just think life is short. Anger can come in many forms. I think anger can be a great motivator. But I've come to the point in my life where running around with the two-by-four, whacking people over the head and saying religious people are stupid and morons and brain defective or whatever, you know, that's not yeah. how we fix it. It's not how we change the world. And I just don't think it's a good way to live life. And I think that's fair. I'm glad that the message coming out of this broadcast, the temperature of this show has helped you in your own journey. That's a tremendous compliment to me, Walter. 
and I appreciate it, man. All right. Have a good one. Yep, man. See you. Bye. Susie at area code 850. Are you there? Yes, I am. How are you doing, Seth? I'm so good. Or I'm, I'm well. I'm sorry. My English teachers just had a heart attack. I'm doing quite well. Thank you, Susie. Talk to me. What's on your mind today? You were just talking about your mom and, and um, how she's like still trying to get you back in. And it's like once you pull the thread into atheism, it's hard to go back to make believe, you know? And I guess unless someone's crossed that line... Just like when some people say on, like, talk with Matt Dillahan, they go, well, I was, an, I was an atheist, too, and now I'm a Christian. It's like, well, okay, that's a hard leap to make to me. I think, but, too, um, it sounds like they're trying to build street cred. I was an atheist. I was out there, man. I was godless. And then Jesus revealed himself. Or then I discovered all the evidence for God. And now it's so they use it as kind of a business card when they enter a debate or conversation. And I'm fascinated by how few of those legitimate stories there are. I've known a few people. They were religious and then they became an atheist, and then a few years later, they went back into some kind of religion. And often with those people, it's because they missed the community, and maybe they still harbored a fear of not living forever, and there were other factors at play. Almost never did I see theology. It was always really more about community and belonging and, and kind of balming the mind and heart in this crazy world. But those stories even then were really rare. Almost always it's stories of people leaving the faiths and becoming an atheist. Has that been your experience? Yes, or it's like young men, they meet a girl and she goes to church and they just kind of go along to be with the girl. You know, yeah. There's an ulterior motive there. Yeah, social but, um, in-grouping, community, yeah. tribes, tribalistic, security. There's so much psychology behind why people gravitate to these types of groups. I'm sorry, Susie, go ahead. Go ahead. What else you have? I was raised Southern Baptist, and my dad never went. I think he was a deist. But my oldest brother, he's atheist like I am, and he pretty much always has been. He was very skeptical even in Baptist Sunday school. And he would ask a lot of questions and make the Sunday school teacher mad. <laughs> One thing he asked was, does each planet have its own God? And the Sunday school teacher said, no, oh, no, no. <laughs> and then I found out years later when my mom would put a couple of dollars in the envelope for us to put in the plate in church, my brother told her he was going to go sit in the back. He would actually walk down the street, buy an IC and a comic book with the money and read the comic book. <laughs> And then toss it in the woods and then be standing outside church. Oh, he was blessed in a whole different we... way, wasn't he? <laughs> he cast his bread upon the waters and it returned to him as a beverage and a comic book. Yes. The part of the story that strikes me the most is my mother did the same thing. She would uh, take a few bucks out of her purse and she would have us slide it in the envelope or just toss it in the offering plate. And in her mind, she was training us to give back, right? We turn to the storehouse, what is the Lord's, which is the whole concept of tithing, right? Everything belongs to God. And so the 10% that you tithe, you're actually returning to the storehouse what already belongs to the Father. But she was 
really programming into us this notion that monetary goods, our resources financially and otherwise need to be brought to the church and handed over in the hopes that when we got jobs and had careers and built the rest of our adult lives, we would continue the practice that had been programmed into us as young children. Fill the envelope, drop the checks, the dollars, whatever in the plate, use your credit card, cast your bread out upon the water, and it shall be returned unto thee. And that training is often very effective. So it's a good point. Susie, thanks so much for calling. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right. See you. Anybody else become acutely aware after leaving the church about how much of your currency you don't have to spend? And I'm not just talking about money. I mean time, the currency of weekends, Sunday morning. And I know there are some people who wake up cheery, all too cheery and happy and spry, and they spring into action and they can't wait to go to church and they have a wonderful time and leave inspired. Yes, I get it. But I was not that person, especially growing up. And we were forced. You get up out of bed, it is time to go to church. We're going to make 9 a.m. service. And back then, it wasn't as much a come-as-you-are experience. You can wear jeans and T-shirts and even shorts. Like, contemporary churches are so much different. Back then, no, you don't, you don't wear jeans. You don't wear shorts to church. Not to be in the presence of the Lord. So it's slacks and a collared shirt, everything perfectly pressed, nice shiny shoes, the girls in dresses. We are going to church. And we would sit through the church and we would be waiting for the final benediction. And I don't know how much has changed on attend church these days, but it used to be it's the same template. You show up, we begin with a big song, there's an opening prayer, some announcements, then you do another song, maybe special music, there's an offering, more announcements, the pastor preaches, they have an altar call, and then at the very, very, very end, there's a final prayer. Lord, we thank you so much as everyone goes off into their lives. We ask that you keep them safe as they spread your good word. Amen. Amen. And everybody stands up. And the people sitting in the congregation who have been ready to go for an hour and a half, <laughs> it's like they've been freed from prison. Oh, I'm good. Now I can go home and I can get in my grubbies and I can enjoy the rest of my day. Oh, have you noticed what it's like to get your weekends back? Sunday morning. When I wake up, I worship my pillow. I just bow down. I bow back down and say, oh, yes, cool pillow. I will flip thee, and I will lay my head into thee, and we shall commune together. I will feel the spirit of the pillow enrapturing me above the neck. Can I get an amen? Oh, it's 8 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock. Fine with me. I got nowhere to be. Oh, that's lovely. My Sunday mornings have received salvation and liberation. Can I get an amen? Anybody else feel that? The liberation. I don't know. I just went off. Let's hang out some more. Short break. I'll be right back after this. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you haven't checked out my second podcast, please do so. You can subscribe on all major podcast apps. True Stories with Seth Andrews, five-minute vignettes, true crime, celebrity trivia, weird news, fascinating history. You just never know what you're going to get. Five minutes a show, three days a week, truestoriespodcast.com. Area code. 301 Ray, thanks for calling. Are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Seth. Thanks for calling. What's on How your mind? You? Um, I was thinking about a, a time I was riding a, a Maryland bus last year, late last year, and I got my life threatened, and it was related to religion, atheism specifically. And what happened was I was sitting, got onto the bus, sitting across from a guy who was disturbed. And uh, he started asking me questions about how God's been good to me, or if God's been good to me, and if I love God, etc. And he pressed it, and eventually got to the point where he said, concluded that I was an atheist. And then uh, started to try to ask the usual questions, why, and I'd just say no to all his assumptions. And then he said something about illegals on the bus, and what I thought of him, and I said, I don't care, but he heard something else, and just accused me of being a racist and told the rest of the bus. And then I said, okay, I got, I'm going to move to the back and got away from him. And he pressed on He This went on for about 15 minutes and then he got escalated and he started threatening to F me up and he knew people who would F me up and asked me if I was white at that point. And I thought that was weird. And I had my phone dialed to I one, one, I was ready this thing's got worse. And then he said, I was going to die. I was going to die tonight. And then I wasn't sure whether I should get off the bus if he'd follow me or stay on the bus where there are other people. I wasn't sure what to do. And after a while, he finally got up his, his stop. And as he was getting ready to get off the bus, he said, do you want me to F you up? I said, no. And then he said, well, you're going to die tonight. God's going to kill you. And when he said that, I knew it was going to be okay. <laughs> but that made me think today when I was listening to you, even though his religion kind of set him off about me, I wonder, maybe the fact is superstition about God and God being responsible for killing me, maybe that prevented him from doing something much worse, or at least trying to. What do you mean by now, disturbed? Do you feel like he was 
you know, disadvantaged? He had some, he was troubled in some way, or do you think he was operating? Yes. Okay. Okay. I don't think he was thinking clearly, especially the way he jumped from you're an atheist to you're a racist. That was weird. And yes, he was definitely disadvantaged. Kind of like a thought salad. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in the blender of his brain spilling out. But uh, until today, it never occurred to me that maybe I was thinking like, here's an example of religious thinking that's, you know, triggered this whole thing. But I never thought about the other side. Maybe his religious superstitions prevented things from getting even worse. I don't know. Maybe there's two edges to this sword. If he had thought God wasn't going to do it, if maybe he, he would have taken the matter into his own hands. Huh? Correct. Correct. Now, maybe he wouldn't have, the whole thing wouldn't have started. Maybe we found some other reason. But yeah, maybe that stopped him from, he certainly wasn't afraid to fight me. At least that's the way he sounded. But to take it to the next step to try and kill me, that's where his red line was. That's God's responsibility. Scary times. I'm glad yeah. you're safe, Ray. Glad it worked out, brother. Thanks. Me too. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for sharing the story. We'll talk next time. Okay. Bye. Right, bye. I tell you that story about the comedian who said whenever somebody wants to fight you and you don't think you want to fight or won't win, just take your pants off. Have I said that? I've never forgotten that. Someone's going to come kick your ass. First thing to do, you just take off your pants. Because nobody wants to fight anybody who takes off their pants. <laughs> I told you that. Somebody, like, I am not a fighter. I'm not physical in that way. I've never been that dude. I've all, when I was in high school, hell, when I was in junior high, I was kind of a smart-ass, smart-mouth, snarky kid. And the truth is, is that I should have had my ass kicked on several occasions. It's the same thing that I do when I'm in a movie theater and I've paid full price for a ticket and somebody fires up a cell phone or won't stop talking during the movie. And when I believe, which I am convinced, that you sign a social contract when you go to the movies in a public place to follow the rules and don't spoil it, I will get out of my chair, Natalie's horrified, I will get out of my chair and I will go down and I will say, shut off your phone. I've waited for people at the end of the movie. I've been in the lobby and I've said, next time you want to talk for two straight hours, leave and go to the lobby. I did not spend 25 bucks to listen to the sound of your voice. I I will do that. Usually during the film. I have not yet had my ass kicked. It should have happened. Statistically. I'm a miracle. And that's what my wife says to me. One of these days, you're going to get your ass whipped. Maybe. But if somebody comes at me, I'm just going to, should I just take off my pants? (laughs) Because nobody wants to fight somebody who takes off their pants. I just heard that from, uh, I forget the name of the comedian. If anybody knows, put it in the... um, Put it in the comments. I've got 785. Who's this? Amos. Amos, appreciate you. What's on your mind? Yes. I have this slightly bit of, a, I guess, a traumatic event. Okay, it's not really slight. It's actually quite traumatic event from my childhood. And I know that you're not like a psychologist or a therapist or anything, but there is one aspect of it I think you might be able to advise on. Growing up, I was apostolic Pentecostal. And uh, we had these family devotionals every night where I would play the piano and we would sing and my dad would read from the Bible. And uh, 
I got into a car accident and broke my leg at the age of eight. I was in traction for three weeks, and when I came out of traction and was in a cast, my dad had been replacing my piano playing with some other guy that he had met. And this, he was some kind of long-haired hippie guy who had like this truck and with a camper on it, and he would come by and he would play the guitar while they did the family devotionals. Well, I was back to playing the piano, and we we did this for three or four nights. And then one night, I woke up to the sound of my mom screaming, and she was screaming my name, and uh, not my dad's. She was screaming my name. And my dad was standing at the door, just told me, just stay there. Just don't do anything. And uh, and we never saw that guy again because it took me up until at least several years to realize that what was happening was that man was raping my mother. And uh, it has bothered me all the way to this day. I'm 42 years old now, and it's still bothering me to this day. And I've talked with therapists about it and all that stuff because I can't seem to get closure. I talked to my dad when I was, I don't know, turned 20. I was about 20 years old when I brought it up again, and he denied that it ever happened. My dad to this day is a diehard Christian man and still tries to pray for me, still, still tries to, you know, hopes that I'll open my eyes one day. But I can't get, seem to get closure from it. I don't know how to approach my dad, and I know that the best way to do this is not to come up to him and say, well, you're a Christian, and throw that in his face. Why can't you admit to this? So that's the part I was, I was hoping for advice from you. How would you get closure from your apostolic, Pentecostal, diehard Christian father? But I wouldn't want to throw something in his face, you know? I've had conversations with psychologists, and I've brought up the word closure. And the psychologists that I've been in dialogue with are not fans of that word, because in many ways, you don't get closure. I I don't think there is closure with the knowledge that your mother was raped. I don't think that you necessarily even want to get past it as far as the outrage that you feel and the fact that you see your father in a specific way, a very honest way, a very raw way. Sometimes I think we punish ourselves because, well, I I haven't gotten past it. I don't have closure with the capital C. That may be unrealistic. I'm not even sure it isn't maladaptive. Outrage is the appropriate response. I try to, uh, you know, look at this from all perspectives, and I have not looked at it from that perspective before. I think you really did just help me. I never considered that closure might not. Oh, my goodness. Well, again, you said it. I'm not the psychologist, but most of this stuff doesn't fit in a box. And there's this desire that we have to draw hard lines. I reached this moment in my life, and it was done, and I had dealt with it. And it was complete. It is finished. You know, and I plant my flag and I move on. But I'm not convinced that life works like that. I'm not convinced that closure is, at least in the context that you mean, is a thing. I'm certainly not sure it's something that you should punish yourself for not attaining. Now that you put it that way, it kind of makes me realize maybe it wasn't really closure, but a desire to hold my dad accountable for not intervening when that man was doing that to my mother which is a whole different thing right because that has to do with him where closure 
you're speaking about That's closure in relation to you, but holding accountable, yeah. that has more to do with him. I, you know, I, I think you may have to reframe your father in terms of who he is, what he has done. And if there's no penitence or accountability or repentance, for lack of a better word, you know, they, that just is what it is. I wouldn't carry that on your shoulders. That's a burden you don't need. You are correct. And you've, you opened, that's, that's why I called you, because you're really good at opening people's minds a bit more, even when I didn't realize it was closed. Let's phrase it this way. I'm adding a perspective. I just threw another tool in yes. the toolbox. You can take it, leave it. It may or may and not even be a good one. It was a damn good tip. Okay. All right. Well, it a damn it's good just tool. a perspective. I really am desperate. Yeah. These are such heavy, critical issues. I can't help yes, but think that you might benefit by talking to somebody who is trained in this field who really can speak professionally about mm -hmm. you know sexual assault trauma to family what it does to your mind and heart and what you feel your responsibilities are moving forward you know that's a conversation i think you should pursue with somebody who is pedigreed credentialed and legit okay thank you very much Seth. thanks amos be good brother we'll see you yeah all right bye. Yep. bye how often do we look at people and say I wish they would take responsibility. I feel like if I was to say this, maybe they'd see the light. I just want to hear him say the words, I did it, and I'm sorry. I hate the fact that they have success in their life wearing a mask, living a facade, living a life when most people have no idea what they're really capable of. I get that. But how much responsibility can we take for the deeds that other people do or do not do? We might be able to sound the alarm to other people and say, warning, danger, be careful, keep your eyes open, do some digging, right? Background check, hello, there are many of us out here who have real and legitimate concerns. I think that is important for the safety of other people, right? If you've got someone who's done sexual assault in this context, they could be capable of it again. Yeah, I think that's valid as well, right? Not libel or slander, but if you have a legitimate concern, I think you can go to some of the people involved and say, there are some problems here. You need to be aware of what they are. Do with this information what you will. I would consider that due diligence. But changing other people, who they are, sometimes we carry that mantle and I just think, oh, we just can't. It's a burden that we shouldn't have to carry. You know, people at some point are going to have to navigate their own lives and take responsibility for that. I've got area code 425. Is it Miska or Miska? Mitko. I like meat company. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking my call. So I'm a, long, a lifetime atheist in my 30s now, and I've spent decades studying other religions and philosophies. My idea is that by learning about religions, you actually learn about the cultures and people. I've been meaning to write a book that is to answer specifically Christian-flavored questions through a scientific or an atheist point of view, in such that like, if a question is to be asked of a diehard Christian, the only answer they would give is because God. Uh, if you you can think of some of these question types, why are we here, or the origin of universe, science, philosophy, stuff like that. So 
While writing this book, I've written down an outline and I've collected the questions. I've written answers that are applicable for them. And I wanted to ask, as a published author of topics related to atheism, religion, yourself, how did you approach writing books on the topic? Did you take it as a storytelling or did you want to do like an essay? Do you have the knowledge, the research, the information to be able to write on these topics? Uh, yeah, so the, I'm pretty versed on a lot of scientific, uh, you could say I'm scientifically literate. And these would be questions that are related, not just science, but some philosophy. And I'm not going to bite off more than I can chew and answer things. If I had to sum it up in a couple of sentences, and I know most people are not writing a book, I'm not trying to bore you to death here. But I think if you are expressing a personal story, you're taking that kind of personal journey, whether it's yours or somebody else's writing fiction or nonfiction, that's more of a kinetic kind of writing. It's more about flow and momentum. Sometimes you're in the zone, you know, and you, the expressions just come out of you. And sometimes you start the journey and don't even know how it's going to end up. I've written ghost stories for the October podcast where I've got a great beginning. I have no idea how it's going to end. And I'll just start writing the beginning. And the character does this all of a sudden in my brain. That's great. So I've discovered the character while I'm telling the story. Well, how's it going to end? I don't know. Let's think about that. And then inspiration comes. I'm writing and discovering. But if I'm addressing specific things and sacred cows, we were talking about specific belief traditions, faith traditions, rituals, etc. I laid those out. This chapter, this chapter, this chapter, I knew in advance how it would all frame out. And then I was able to go and fill in all the blanks. But I had a template in place. Fox News Christian, a great example. I knew I was going to go after the origins of Fox News and I was going to get into MAGA culture and Christian nationalism. And I'd laid it out, a template. And then I went back with heavy sourcing. Lots of footnotes, lots of data to back up what I was writing about. Two very different kinds of storytelling. But I also think the data needs to be told in story form to be most effective. If you go after someone with a clinical textbook, you have not engaged them. But if you can tell the story of the specifics you're talking about, if you can engage all the senses, that really sucks them in, sets the hook, gets them leaning forward. And two last things, walk away from your work from time to time and then come back to it even days later. Get an objective look at it and have a third set of eyes. I've got a, a trusted copy editor, professional in the language who can check me and double check me. I mean, I'm confident as a storyteller, but I also know that I can always improve and I need an objective eye. And that's what uh, Jessica Vineyard over at Red Letter Editing does for me. I don't know. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you very much for your insight. Thanks so much for calling. Good luck with the project. Thanks a lot. Jasmine at area code 704. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can. What's on your mind? Oh, yeah. So uh, my name is Jasmine, and I was just calling to thank you for always putting out really entertaining programs. You know, even if the subject matter is dark, it's still a very compelling and I don't I'm not very good with words. So no, I, got <laughs> I don't you. know. I don't have the right words. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's always very good, very good stuff. 
I've been listening to you for maybe 10 years at this point. I'll be 30 this year, and I started listening to you when I was like 19, maybe. So. Oh, I'm feeling yeah, old. Hot minute. Jasmine, <laughs> I'm feeling old. Oh, you know, what, yeah. I used to get, what I used to get in FM radio was I listened to you when I was a kid, and I'm always like, oh, oh, oh my heart, you know. <laughs> hey, yeah. uh, it's not easy I, I, to come up with fresh content all the time on the order of 650-plus shows and knowing that there were so many options out there and to hear someone say that the content still relates to me and I still enjoy it and it's still entertaining, that is a tremendous gift to me. To have someone notice that is uh, hugely yeah, yeah. gratifying, Jasmine. That's so, so sweet of you to say. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad I was able to make you feel a little <laughs> a little good today. It's lovely. Yeah, I just figured I'd call in and I'm off work today and didn't have anything else to do. So you go and, and call in. Enjoy your day. <laughs> go eat an Oreo cookie. I'm just, you just, you I deserve I love an Oreo cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I have a wonderful day. Be safe. We'll see you later. Okay. All right. You too. All right. Thanks. Oh, look, as I bring the show full circle, someone has sent me a couple of poems about Oreo cookies. By the way, they're getting one hell of an advertisement on the show. <laughs> you're welcome, Oreo. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's see. Uh, Oreo. Life is like an Oreo cookie. Past, present, future. The best part is in the middle. Mmm, that's profound. Cookie philosophy. Another one, Oreo cookies dunked in milk is greater than the finest of silk. Now here's one called Ode to an Oreo. Round tasty disc of rich dark chocolate bliss, creamy filling, warm and buttery, come to my lips, another moment I won't miss. Free for me, how happy I would be. Some are smothered in milky chocolate, creamy white or lighter brown. Give me some, for I can't wait. In that taste, I'd gladly drown. Oh, I can think of worse ways to go. <laughs> Death by chocolate and creamy filling. All right, I'm done. Thanks for indulging me. I'll see you back here next time. Take care. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com.